Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning into our Q&A. I know it's been a couple weeks since our last one. The reason why we didn't have a Q&A last week, if you didn't hear on our post show, is that we just redid our set in here. Pastor Steve did a fantastic job uh, being able to make this set more excellent for all of the amazing content and plans that we have scheduled out for our online ministry over the course of the next few years. So Pastor Steve... Huge shout out to you. Thank you for doing all this and making Dave and I look even more beautiful each well, and every time we step in front know, of this camera. Somebody needs to help us in that regard, <laughs> yeah, Josh. Somebody so. does need to help <laughs> us. Absolutely. Well, today we're going to be continuing our series yeah. on Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, we're and getting I, close to the end. We're getting close yeah, to the end. Very close. Now, Dave, I'm going to ask you a big time question. Okay, okay big time I question. I know this is like we started this <laughs> in like the beginning of January. And here we are, I think it's like, what, February 21st it's, or something it's today? It's the 21st of February. Can you give us a quick recap of what we Whoa, have tackled? yeah, okay. This? So, in essence, um, we began getting a number of questions that were dialing in on, what's the difference between yeah. Catholics and Protestants, connections, evangelicals, whatever the case may be? Um, and we began by talking about that in terms of, of baptism, because that was the yeah. question. But as the questions kept coming in, we decided, let's just back up and go into a little bit more depth on what the differences are. Essentially, the differences all grow out of the two great issues of the Reformation, the Reformation, uh, which was spearheaded by Martin Luther, in, es in essence, said two things were true that the Catholic Church wasn't teaching. One is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus. That it's faith plus nothing. The second was that when it comes to authoritative teaching that needs to bind, bind a Christian's conscience, it's the Bible alone. Not what any man, any church, any denomination says the Bible means, but what the Bible actually says. So the, out of those two truths, those two claims, faith alone and scripture alone, the major differences grow between Catholicism and Christian denominations that aren't Catholic, yeah. which for the most part is what Protestants are. So what we've been doing is dissecting what are those differences. In terms of faith alone, the, the Catholic Church teaches a sacramental theology. Sacraments are things you do that contribute to your forgiveness, mm -hmm. atonement, mm -hmm. so you can eventually make it to heaven. Uh, so uh, baptism, uh, communion... Eucharist is yeah. what they would call it. Uh, confirmation. Uh, these are the, the primary ones that they, that they talk about. So we talked about why do Catholics teach that? What verses do they use in the Bible? We brought the, all the verses up. We addressed those verses. Now we're turning the corner a little bit because we're talking about, in Catholic theology, what happens if you haven't done enough to be good enough to get into heaven right away, what happens to you next? So that's kind of where we are in the overall flow. Yeah, I'm very uh, 
interested about today's topic, mainly because I don't really know a lot about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a non-denominational Protestant church my whole life. So, yeah. so yeah. purgatory, which is what we're talking about today, is something that just never, ever gets talked about. Yeah, there's a reason so, for that, John. For sure, yeah. Because absolutely. the Bible doesn't yeah. talk about absolutely. it, but it does we'll it. get into that. So it's like, I, I've, I've always known that the Catholic Church talk, like talks it yeah. and they teach it, but... I know nothing about it, so I'm about to get a history lesson. All right, well, right now, just um, like everybody else is. And I do want to point out, if you haven't seen any of our past ones where we break down the other sacraments, you can go back on our Facebook or our YouTube page to be able to find those Q and A so that you can listen to them. But Dave, are you ready to dive in? I am as ready as I'm going to be. All right, let's do it. So I know that you've already touched on it a little bit. I know that we already talked about it a little bit. But what is the sacrament of purgatory? Yeah, and that is, that. that's a really good question. So what I've chosen to do is I'm going to quote mm-hmm. the Catholic um, catechism yep. so that um, it's th- these are their words, not my words, mm-hmm. all right? So here's what the the catechism of the Catholic Church teaches. It says... All who die in God's grace and friendship, and that's a phrase often used to refer to people that have placed their faith in Jesus, um, and so they're in the scope of God's grace and friendship. They're not ready for heaven, but that's how they kind of define the term. So those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still are imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joys of heaven. Purgatory is a place where we suffer, as we'll see, to get purified of our sins so we can eventually make it to heaven. Mm. So it's like if if you qualify upon death... To eventually make it to heaven, you go to purgatory to suffer for X period of time so that you're purified enough to make it to heaven. They go on and say this, while we may die with our mortal sins forgiven, Catholics put all sins into two categories, mortal and venial sins. A mortal sin is defined in the Catholic church as being a very grave offense, so it's a more serious sin. It's committed knowledgeably, so you know what's wrong when you do it, and you do it intentionally. So if you intentionally do something you know is wrong, that's a big sin, it's a mortal sin. If you die with mortal sin, no purgatory, straight to hell. Um, But if you commit a mortal sin, there is a way to be forgiven for it in the Catholic Church. But if you die and you haven't gone to confession, received absolution from a priest, and we talked about confession, uh, so definitely reference that one. If you haven't done that, then there's no hope. However, it says, for those who may be forgiven of their mortal sins, uh, but still... Um, but they still may have impurities in them, specifically venial sins and the temporal punishment due to sins already forgiven. So you've got some sins that you haven't paid for or you haven't paid for enough, so you have to go to purgatory. Here's how it concludes. Souls in purgatory undergo a purification suffering of love. Since these souls can't be purified by their own efforts, but this is so critical, 
They atone for their sins by undergoing purifying suffering, which reestablishes holiness and justice. So, their suffering is meant to incur God's justice. I'm suffering for my sin until I have atoned for my sin and I've achieved the level of holiness or purification that I can finally make it into heaven. So in Catholic theology, purgatory is where I suffer to be purified for my sins, to atone for sins that haven't yet been sufficiently atoned for so that I can finally be good enough or pure enough that I can get into heaven. That's their teaching. Interesting. It is interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. And we, you know, I, I jokingly but honestly said the reason you never heard of it is because the Bible doesn't teach it. Catholic scholars and theologians would go, hold on just a minute. Um, yes, it does. And so the critical nature or the critical component here is to go, okay, where do they come up with this yeah. teaching? And is, are the verses that they use legitimately interpret to mean there is such a thing as purgatory? That's yeah. where the issue becomes. Yeah. So they believe it is biblical and they, they will say why. Well, as we've done in our past ones where we've looked mm -hmm. at each and every sacrament, we take the Bible verses that they use and we break them down. We Correct. look at the context, we compare it to the rest of scripture, and that's what we're going to do right here. So you ready to hop in? We're to ready to hop these in. Verses? Let's look at it. Let's do it. We're going to start in Psalm 6612. And in Psalm 6612, it says, you let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Okay. So let's, first, let's just deal with the text by itself. Because there's something interesting about that verse that gets missed in interpreting the verse correctly. The first is the overall context of the verse. Mm -hmm. And the second have to do with the tenses used that you can clearly see even in English. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up and give a little bit more context. Okay. In Psalm 66, here are the verses just preceding that verse. Here's what it says. Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for humankind. That's past tense. He turned the seas into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Past tense. It's the Exodus when yep. they came out of, out, of, uh, out of Egypt. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. Past tense. Yep. For you, God, tested us. Past tense. You refined us like silver. Past tense. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs, past tense. Then this verse, you let people ride over our heads, past tense. We went through the fire and the water, past tense. And you brought us to a place of abundance, past tense. Everything about this verse is praising God for what he did in the past in bringing God's people through difficult times, to bless them in the end. There is nothing in this yeah. about suffering for our own sins so in the future we can enjoy a place of abundance. This verse demonstrates a pattern in every proof text that the Catholics use 
to say there is such a thing as purgatory. They take a reference to suffering, then a reference to blessing, and go, see, you got to suffer before you're blessed. Purgatory. When I was a little kid, little kid, grade school, my sisters and I on beautiful summer days in southern Wisconsin, after we had played for a while, would lay down in the backyard often and just look up at the sky and at the clouds, and we would play a game. Can you see a face there? And we would play, oh, yeah, if you do this, that's a face, and if you do that, we could always see a face. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what the reality is. There are no faces in the clouds. Right. But what we did was try to invent a face by putting this and that together, and that's kind of a nose and whatever. I'm going to suggest that that is what Catholic theologians do when they attempt to say the Bible teaches purgatory. Nothing in that verse, in context, in grammar, teaches there's a purgatory. You have to read into it. You have to invent a face in that verse to say that it actually exists. The text itself doesn't read it. Yeah. In addition, and I want to say this up front because this is going to apply every verse we talk about. The notion of purgatory is not only unbiblical, it is, and I say this under advisement, it is utterly heretical because it violates three uber clear teachings of the Bible. Mm. First teaching, there's no second chance after death to atone for your sins and make it right with God. Zero evidence of that in the Bible. Jesus, however, told a very famous story of a rich man who had a good life and a beggar who had a crappy life. But the rich man hadn't been justified before God. Yep. The beggar had. When they died, they went to two very different places. Jesus tells us what it's like. And he says that between the unconverted person and the converted person, the rich man and Lazarus, there is a, that first of all, the rich guy is suffering. Yeah. He's in torment. The converted person is in, in paradise, in a good yeah. place, right? Blessedness. And Jesus puts these words into the character's mouth. There is a great gulf fixed between us. So no one can go from where the rich man is to where Lazarus is. Yeah. Can't be done. Jesus is teaching us in this passage of scripture that where you are after you die is where, essentially, where you're going to be. Yeah. There's no way for the person who's in torment to suffer enough and get, no, the gulf is fixed. You can't get from there to here. Mm -hmm. So it totally violates what the scripture teaches about no second chance after a person passes away. Right. It's a permanent state that you enter into. Here's a second thing that it violates, and, I, and I, I, I'm up verses that I want to read. It violates the clear Bible teaching that Jesus' suffering and Jesus' suffering alone is sufficient to atone for every sin of every person who ever lived. Yeah. Couldn't be clearer. Just a couple of verses. Hebrews 9 and verse 26. But now, once for all time, 
Jesus has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Who removes sin? Jesus. He does it for all time. 1 John 2, first two verses. For we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We aren't for our own. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Final verse, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Do you know why my suffering for my sin can atone for my sin? Because it's a deserved punishment for me. Mm-hmm. I can't atone for my own sin. Yeah. Jesus without sin took my place and suffered for me yep. to satisfy God's demand for justice. Christ suffered the righteous for the righteous to bring you to God. His suffering atones. His suffering is what brings me to God. So the notion that I play any role in my own suffering to purify or atone my sins is a heresy. It's just a perversion of what the Bible teaches. Third, and this so often gets overlooked, including, by the, by the way, by evangelical churches when they preach the gospel. Because when we place our faith in Christ, we often say, because it's true, we're forgiven of all sin. Bam, could not agree more, yep. right? In him is forgiveness, which means slate is wiped clean. Mm-hmm. People who are teaching it accurately go, my slate is wiped clean, past, present, future. So there's forgiveness, but there's more than forgiveness. Josh, the Bible says there's not just a removal of my sin, there's a bestowal of Christ's righteousness. I am gifted the perfection of Jesus. Again, here's where the Bible teaches that. Romans 3, verses 22 through 25. I know you love the book of Romans. I do love the book of Romans. Check this out. This is, this is my hope. This is the hope of every born-again person. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. How are we made right with God, Josh? By placing our faith in Jesus. Okay. It's like John 3, 16. And yes. That's where that's why purgatory doesn't make sense <laughs> with any of this. <laughs> and this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. I don't care what sin anybody's committed. No. It doesn't matter who you are. Faith in Jesus is what makes you right with God. This is true of everyone who believes no matter who they are. For everyone has sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Freely means without cost to us. Freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ. When he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Freed us from the penalty. I don't have to pay for my sins. Jesus did. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in, the, in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Just, I don't know how it can be any clearer. Yeah. 
Jesus is the one and only way because he died on the cross to atone for every sin who every person who ever lived. His death is sufficient. And anyone who believes in Jesus, God justifies, makes us right with him. He forgives us of all sin. And the perfection of Jesus is credited to our account. That is who we are in Jesus. Because the Bible never teaches a second chance after death. In fact, it teaches the opposite. Because the Bible clearly teaches Jesus Christ is sufficient to do all of the mm -hmm. atonement for every sin. And because we're gifted with the righteousness of Jesus upon our faith in Jesus, any notion that we play a role in our own purification by suffering to atone for sins is utterly unbiblical and a heresy that must be rejected all right well we covered everything so <laughs> no that i'm just all by teasing itself, no but you see yeah. that by itself because those verses mm, are so clear for sure should color the way we interpret all the verses yeah. that catholic theologians used to allude to there has to be a purgatory. Yeah, and this this goes right back to why it is so important to compare Scripture yes. with Scripture. It is absolutely crucial to do that. So we have a few more verses that we're going to go through, even though we could end right there. <laughs> we, we, and we covered what we needed I to cover. I think we could. But we got some more verses to go through because they don't just use one verse. They use multiple verses to, to try to prove this. So let's look at Micah chapter 7, verse 9. This is in the Old Testament. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light, and I will see his righteousness. Okay. Once again, I... I would simply suggest that if you look at that verses, the only way you can see purgatory, suffering for your sins after you die so you finally make it mm -hmm. to heaven, is trying to find a face in the clouds. Yep. You have to read it in. Let's go, let's go to context. Mm -hmm. How many times have we said that as we've discussed all of these Numerous verses? Numerous times. You've got to drop it in the context. Yep. Micah is writing shortly before half of the nation Israel, the northern half, which was a separate kingdom, mm -hmm. was about to be conquered and carried into captivity. The southern kingdom, which was called Judah, kind of the other half of the nation Israel after they split, they were committing the same sins and they were in danger of also being captured and carried into activity. Micah is writing to them basically saying, you got to change your ways or you know what? You're going to be conquered and you're going to be carried away into captivity and you're not going to be able to continue inhabiting the promised land. There were horrible things going on committed by, by Judah at the time. Um, one, the wealthy were abusing the poor. They didn't, they, they, they would use the poor. They didn't uh, bless the poor. They didn't use their funds to help the poor. Wealthy, abusing, poor people. Second, the court system was practicing favoritism. So rather than giving justice to everyone equally, the powerful were not only getting justice, they were shown favoritism, and the people who were not powerful, the laws were being perverted and they were being punished. The third thing that was going on was the prophets and the priests, the religious leaders, were materialistic, mm. And they kept telling the powerful and they curried the powerful's favor by saying, don't worry, God's judgment will never fall on you. 
because they were trying to curry favor with the rich and powerful so that they can continue to line the pockets. So they perverted the word of God. Now, there might be some parallels to what was going on then and what happens in our day. We'll save that for another discussion and lesson. But that's the context into which he's writing. Mm -hmm. He is telling Judah, repent or judgment is coming because of what you're doing. After he tells them that judgment is coming on them from what they're doing, they're going to lose their position as a political nation, he gets personal. This is the personal section. Let's start with the personal section yeah. rather than hopping in the middle. Here's what he says. Micah 7 verse 7. But as for me, I will watch in hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. He is saying, even though judgment is coming, I'm going to keep trusting in God. Next. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be my light. Saying, I might get knocked down, but because of God, I will get back up. He goes on. He says, because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my cause and my case and upholds my cause. This is the verse we see here. What he's saying is, I am not perfect. And because I'm not perfect, I am not immune to God's judgment in this life. Because every judgment he was talking about was an in this life judgment. But he continues after this. He says... He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Now notice, he doesn't say, I'm going to suffer until I've suffered enough. He's going, as a a believer in Jesus, I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to be impacted by the judgments God's going to bring because it's on my nation that I'm a part of. But I'm going to rise from this. And when he pleads my case is when I will write. Not when I've suffered enough, but when he pleads my, my case. It's... He's conjuring up a, a picture of a lawyer in court and God is the lawyer going, wait a minute, this is my righteous one. Mm. Here's, here's what he says is going to happen. He says, then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. He's going, God will vindicate me as he judges his enemies and also his, Micah's personal enemies. This is a passage that says when judgment falls on a nation, people that are in that nation are going to be negatively impacted by it. But God will always vindicate people who are faithful to him and will always reward them in the end. Mm. That's the teaching of this passage. Not that after we die, if we suffer enough, we can finally make it to heaven. We should get like a context buzzer for this Q&A. Every time we need context, let's just push the buzzer a whole bunch of times. That it says would, context over and over again. So then we go to the context. There you go. Because it, it, is, it is so, so important. It's critical. And everyone who hears a verse, and by the way, this is true of anyone teaching God's word. Anyone. Me. Everybody. Yeah. Here's a verse. This verse shows us this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe so. What's the context of that verse? What does it say before? What does it say after? What's the context of the overall book? Mm -hmm. What's the theme of the book? What kind of literature is it? Is it poetry? 
Um, um, is it history? Uh, you've got to look at all of that yeah. content. What does the Bible also have to say about the subject? The Bible is its own best interpreter and the best correction for false teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hop into Matthew, one of the Gospels. Okay, New Testament, yeah. Matthew 5, 25 through 26. It says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Exactly. So, again, facing the clouds, you have to read it in. What it, this, this, these words of Jesus are in the Sermon on the Mount. They are, okay. That's, okay. I just wanted to go double check. That's they're, what I thought. They're I in the Sermon to, on the Mount. Yeah. Matthew's 5, 6, and 7, longest recorded Sermon of mm -hmm. Jesus, yeah. okay? And if there's a passage of scripture that lays out the Christian ethic and the Christian lifestyle, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Jesus is turning his attention to living at peace with people, particularly people you've wronged. Jesus says, here's what you do about it. The two verses before this, Jesus says, when you're worshiping and while you're offering your gift, you realize you've sinned against someone, stop worshiping. Mm. Go to the person you've sinned against and make it right. Yeah. Now, how should we interpret that verse? Should we go, um, let's see, when you're in heaven and in heaven you realize you did something wrong against somebody, you should go, no, we go, no, no, no. Clearly he's talking about on earth. Right. And on earth, when you realize you've done something wrong, you stop anything you do to go make it right. Yeah. His next words are these words. Settle matters quickly when your adversary is taking you to court. This is in this life. What Jesus is saying, and by the way, this was a real life situation that happened to people in that day. Someone had either failed to keep their arrangement on repaying a debt, something. Because clearly this person is in the wrong. Yeah. So he goes, when you get served with a lawsuit and you're being taken to court because you didn't keep your end of the bargain, you've done something wrong against the person. You didn't keep your word. He's going, look, before you ever get to court, find a way to settle with your adversary. By the way, even if it means giving more than you should, just settle the matter. And it would be in real life. If you go before that and you actually are guilty, you know what could happen? And notice Jesus said, you may be, so it's not a guarantee. But here's what may happen. You're gonna get thrown in prison and then you're going to have to find a way to get your debt paid while you're in jail. You are going to complicate your life. You're going to lose your freedom unless you find a way to make things right with someone that you treated wrongly. There's the principle. Take it at face value. If I've, done, if I've not kept my word to someone and I have hurt or injured them, I need to go to them, make things right with them, and if I don't, I'm going to complicate my life. My life's going to be harder than it needs to be. And I'm also going to find myself in a position where um, 
I'm not free. I'm not free to enjoy the life God has for me because I've got business that I need to take care of in making things right with another person. Mm. There is nothing in this passage that warrants being spiritualized into something that happens after you die. This is a real life, real world scenario, just like the scenario before it, of Jesus going, when you've done wrong to somebody, you go make it right. And if you don't make it right, then your life just gets more complicated. That's the yeah. plain, obvious meaning of that passage. Yeah, I remember when we looked at the like the sacrament of baptism and communion and all mm -hmm. those different things. Like when we would read the verses, it'd be like, okay, if you read this verse face value, you don't compare it to anything else. You can see where they're getting the point from. Every verse that we've read so far, I've read it and I'm like, I don't even know where they're getting purgatory from in this. You, so Exactly. And it's why I use the, the, the face in the clouds analogy. You have to read it in. Yeah. You have to go, how can I interpret that to demonstrate mm -hmm. my point? Yeah. We've used these terms before, and I know they're a bit technical, but there's exegesis and eisegesis. All it means is this. There's pulling meaning out of the Bible because it's inherently in it, mm -hmm. and there's reading meaning into the Bible that itself doesn't have. In this passage, like the others we've looked at, you have to read purgatory into it because you can't pull purgatory out yeah. of it. It's just not there. Yeah. For sure. Let's go ahead. Let's, let's stay in the same book. Let's go to chapter 12, verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Oh, the boy, unforgivable the, sin. The unpardonable sin. Oh, boy, we get to talk about yeah. it. This won't sidetrack the discussion this, at all. You, we could do an entire Q&A <laughs> on this, and we then could. what people say the new one is in the book of Hebrews. <laughs> like, we could do an entire Q&A just that's, on that. That's very true. So, and we'll touch on it, at least in a cursory way, to hopefully right. give it a little bit of, of clarity and direction. But the first thing that I, that I want us to notice is, is this. Um, when Jesus says, and we'll talk about what the impardonable sin is in just a second, right. okay? If it is, what it is. When Jesus makes the statement, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Jesus is using a classic figure of speech to say, never forgiven. Mm. What Catholics do is they go, ah, see, Forgiven in this age or the age to come. That means you could be forgiven in this age or you could be forgiven in the next age. Again, you've got to read that in because they're going, it's got to be possible to be forgiven in the age yeah. to come. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said it. Unless Jesus was using a classic figure of speech that basically says, um, this can't be forgiven at all, which is what he's doing. And the reason we would interpret it that way not only is it a classic figure of speech, but the sum total of examples in the whole of scripture of people being forgiven of even a single sin in the next life is zero. Yep. The total number of verses that teach someone is not forgiven of a sin in this life, but is forgiven in the next is zero. Mm. So in the face of zero biblical evidence and in the face of a classic expression, meaning never, 
it's a very easy verse to yeah. interpret. Catholics also have to say, they have to read into this, if there's one sin that, 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 that fits in this category, well, then there must be a bunch of other sins mm -hmm. that you're not forgiven for here, but you are there. Again, right. you have to read that in because that's not what this text says. So what is the impardonable sin? Uh, should I let you answer this question? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know here. right here it's, 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 it's talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, but how the Pharisees were blaspheming Jesus, the, saying he was the devil and all of that. There you go, Josh. Yeah. And, and that's, why I, that's why I posed it that way. What you immediately did was what everybody should do that we just talked about. Yeah. What is the context? Yeah. Jesus is talking about a very specific sin. Mm -hmm. That specific sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yeah. A word often used. Speaking against the Son of Man, forgive it. In other words, you could say anything you want about Jesus, but blasphemy is against the Holy Spirit. What was happening was there were Pharisees mm -hmm. who were confronted with repeated miracles by Jesus. Miracles that healed, blessed, freed. I mean, these are miracles that like everybody that received them went, thank you. Well, well hold on, Dave. It was, it was on the Sabbath. Um, it was, so, some of them, so some of them were. That means that he's got to be a bad guy. Some, some of them, <laughs> yes, exactly right. So when confronted with that, yeah. here was the Pharisees' response. Because they couldn't deny supernatural power right. in Jesus. Couldn't sure. deny it. Yeah, you can't. Back. Okay. Yep. So here's what they said. That supernatural power is the devil. That is Satan filling, empowering, and using Jesus to perform these miracles so as to deceive people and condemn them to hell. The Pharisees were so, not just unbelieving, they were so hard-hearted and complete in their utter rejection of Jesus that they said he is actually on the other side filled with the power of Satan himself deceiving people. They were so intent on justifying themselves and condemning Jesus that they said he's of the devil of himself. That is what Jesus said, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That sin can never be forgiven. Yeah. Now, there are three possible interpretations of the unpardonable sin mm -hmm. in terms of today. Right. One, there's one school of thought that says you can't commit it today. Yeah. It can only be committed by people alive when Jesus was alive who looked at the Jesus miracles and said just what the Pharisees did, yeah. you're of the devil. If that interpretation is correct, and it's a legitimate way to interpret yeah, the passage, sure. it doesn't apply to us today. It only applied in Jesus' day. A second group of people trying to grapple with this would say, okay, so what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is so repeatedly and vehemently hardening your heart against Jesus so often that the Holy Spirit stops convicting you of your sin and attempting to convince you that Jesus actually is the son of God and only savior of the world. So 
it's repeating the sin of the Pharisees, which is saying, I've gotten so hard, I'm only going to justify myself and call Jesus the devil. No one can get saved without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Nobody. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin, convinces us of who Jesus is, enlightens us as to who Jesus is, draws us to himself. We're responsible for responding to that work and believing. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't work on us, we'll never get saved. Now, the Holy Spirit works on everybody. Mm -hmm. Just FYI. Yep. Everybody. But there are those who would interpret this like somebody can do the same thing the Pharisees did. And if so, the Holy Spirit eventually at some point goes, you're so hard and I'm not going to work in your life anymore. They can never be forgiven. So they die unrepentant and they, they ended up um, separated from God in the lake of fire. That also what ties into losing your salvation too. In, in a sense. Um, I know we're going a, down a major a rabbit question. trail right now. but And the answer to that, those that hold the position I just described would say no. Because the same people who would say you can commit the unpardonable sin today by so grieving and resisting and hard against the Spirit of God, he doesn't work anymore. The Spirit of God was never in your life. Mm, they would yeah. also say, but if the Spirit of God is in your life, that's a permanent deal. Yeah. Right? We talked about that, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe, right. mm-hmm. whereas like the Holy Spirit is the deposit given yep. to us, guaranteeing our eternity with yeah. God. Um. The third category of people would say that the only time you can commit the unpardonable sin is being so resistant against Jesus all the way to the moment you die, which means you've died unrepentant and mm-hmm. obviously people who don't repent and believe yeah. on Jesus aren't saved. Which of those three interpretations you hold, they are legitimate interpretations of this. Can't be done today, only when Jesus was alive. Can be done today, but you're repeating the sin of the Pharisees, or it just means you've died unrepentantly and there's no hope for that, that, that person at, at that particular point. They would all fit with other things that the Bible has to teach. What I want to point out is this. One, if you're a Christian, you can't commit the unpardonable sin. Right. It's impossible. because you've already believed and the Spirit's already in you. So if you're a Christian, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. I also want you to notice that the unpardonable sin is not committing a really big sin. It's not like you murdered somebody. Oh, unpardonable sin, never be forgiven. Mm. It's not you've committed adultery. I mean, pick any big sin. It's specifically whatever the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is and can it be applied today. Also notice this, that it means the Spirit of God is no longer at work in your life. So I will sometimes tell people this. Are you worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin? Yeah. Well, then you can't have committed it. <laughs> because the reason you're worried is you're bothered by it. You're convicted yep. over it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't have committed the unpardonable yeah. sin. So there are three possible interpretations. The Catholic interpretation can't be possible. But there are three possible ones. But no matter what, understand it's a specific sin, not a big sin. A Christian can't commit it. And if you're worried about it, you haven't yet committed it because that worry is a conviction that's coming from yeah. the Spirit of God. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's dive into our next one. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. We have it broken up into two slides okay. because on one All slide right. it was just a big jumbled a mess. Yeah. So okay. we're going to look at the first few verses right here. 
Paul writes, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ. So let's Jesus. just stop right there, yep. just because we're yep. going to, like you said, we're right. going to go on the next slide. Um, what is Paul talking about here? What is the spirit of Jesus prompting, inspiring yeah. Paul to write right here? Um, Paul says, I've, I've laid a wise foundation in context, the gospel of Jesus, the people who believe in they're building the light on. Someone else is building on it. Be careful about how you build on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only foundation for life. He's talking to people who've had that foundation laid and now how they live after they've committed their life to right. Jesus. So that's immediate context. Yep. Oh, sorry. Well, now we can go on. Sorry, yeah. my bad. I thought you were going to keep going. I wanted to point that out before <laughs> yep. we moved. I thought you were going to keep going. That's my bad. All right. And the continuation of that says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what was or if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the official Catholic interpretation of this is that this is referring to a person with gold, hay, uh, with with uh, wood, hay, and, mm -hmm. and straw, right? And they, um, they, they have to suffer. They're going to suffer loss, but they'll be saved. But escaping through the flames, see, they've got to go through this period of yeah. suffering before they find. So that's again what they mm -hmm. what they read yeah, into it. But Paul is not talking here about sin. He's not talking about it. The word sin doesn't appear in any of this. Mm -hmm. It's about how Christians live after they're saved. Foundation is laid. My life is being built on Jesus. How are you building? In other words, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. How am I living? Yeah. Because how we live matters yep. a lot. He's saying all of our works are going to be tested. Not sins punished. Works tested. Mm. And the day, judgment day, yep. is going to reveal it. Now, every Christian will stand before Jesus and be judged for how they live their life. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, but we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The word is the bima, is the Greek word. The bima seat was also used, interestingly enough, in uh, Corinth. It was used in the uh, athletic arenas and it's where the athletes would appear to receive rewards for having done well in their race or competition. Yeah. It's a reward notion. Right. So we'll all stand before and our lives will be evaluated, our works will be tested. Good works will be rewarded. Mm. That's the whole point yeah. of this. Good works, gold, silver, precious stone, good works. A good work, Josh, is perhaps best understood as... Um, an act of obedience that is done with a, with a good motive. Anytime I render obedience to Jesus with a good motive, that's a good work. 
That's what I've done. Yeah. Jesus said, even if you're just giving a cup of cold water to someone, that's going to be rewarded. Okay. We're going to be rewarded for our good works in heaven. Right. But not all works are good works. Some works are like they, they, you, it wasn't an act of obedience. Mm -hmm. It wasn't done with the right motive. That is what the whole straw, wood, stubble, that kind of stuff is. There's no reward for that. Those works are just burned up. There's nothing to show for what you've done. Mm -hmm. And this passage is teaching us that not only will good works be rewarded, whereas works that aren't good aren't going to be, but there is the possibility that some people at the end of their life, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, won't have any good works and go into heaven utterly unrewarded. How tragic to be utterly unrewarded by Jesus for the life that you lived in this world. But what happens to them? They still end up in heaven. The phrase, they'll suffer loss yet escape as one escaping through the flames is a word picture of someone whose house is caught on fire and they were able to escape, we would say it this way, only with the clothes on their back. Mm. Everything they own is lost. Some people are truly Christians, but on judgment day when our lives are being evaluated and he's looking to hand out rewards for us to enjoy forever, there may be some Christians who have no good works and their whole life is wasted and lost. But where is that person? Heaven. Mm. So this is a passage of scripture that's a warning to everyone who has had the foundation of Jesus in their life. Do good works. You'll be rewarded for what you've done. If you don't do good works, you're going to get less reward, possibly no reward to enjoy for all eternity. Mm. Don't have a life like that. Nothing about this is where you go after you die. Everything about this is what you experience in heaven after you've lived your life and you stand before Jesus in judgment. Absolutely. Next one. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yeah. So, first of all, yep, you're right. If you're not holy, you won't see God. Couldn't agree more? I agree with the Bible. I, I, I totally agree. Okay. Do you know how many people are naturally holy? That is the correct number, Josh. Zero. Zero. Except for Jesus. <laughs> there you go. Only one. Yeah. <clears throat> However, as we talked about earlier in our discussion today, some people are gifted with holiness, mm. also known as righteousness. Yeah. We're gifted that way. So, yes, it's true. But this holiness is a gift Mm. given to us upon our faith in Christ. Let's look at another passage of scripture, which points this out. I want to go to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 9 to 11. This, This is so, oh, the hope and the beauty of these verses, Josh. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a list of big yeah. sins, right? And that, that list right there, and that is what some of you were. Whoa, 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 wait. He's writing to Christians. Yeah, that's what some of you were. But you are washed. You, you, you were washed. You were sanctified. That word sanctified is the word hagiadzo. And it means to be made holy. <laughs> yeah, you big sin committers. Right. When you were washed of all of your sin, when you were forgiven by Jesus, you were also made holy. It's a gift. It's given to you by Jesus. You were made holy. <clears throat> you were justified, made right in the sight of God in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Not by your works, not by your suffering, not by your own purification. You were gifted holiness when you trusted Jesus. So yes, I could not agree more. If you're not holy, you don't see God. But you know how you get holy? You put your faith in Jesus and have it credited to you, gifted to you. It's part of what salvation is all about. Here's what I find absolutely fascinating. 63 times in the New Testament, all Christians are referred to as saints. Mm -hmm. The word saint means holy one. It's the same mm -hmm. word, hagiadzo. Yep. It's a holy one. He's going, all you holy ones, the church at Corinth, to all the saints, you holy ones. And then he talks about how messed up they all are yep. and all the problems they have. Every single Christian is a saint mm. because they have been made holy as a gift because they placed their faith in Jesus. This is salvation. Mm. So the notion that somehow we have to suffer for our own sins to become holy enough by virtue of what we do to see God, again, is unbiblical and heretical. It's a gift given to us by what Jesus has done for us. Absolutely. And then the last one. Okay. And then in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I feel like we need some context. Well, first of all, I want to say amen and amen. Yeah. <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> this is like the end of the end. We're going to do a series in a little while on the end times. I know, time, I was just about days, to say, can you keep those? This yep. is kind of like a little so teaser. So little teaser, little teaser, that's coming up in the very near future. Mm -hmm. Right after Easter, yeah. actually, is when we're planning on doing it. And this is talking about new heaven, new earth. This mm -hmm. is where we're actually going to live forever. Yeah. If we've been made holy, if we've been forgiven, if we've trusted Jesus. And who gets to enter the perfect eternal state? Yeah. Paradise in a new heaven and a new earth. And we're being told, nothing unclean shall enter it. And by the way, unclean is, a, is a, an Old Testament reference to people who are disqualified from fellowship with God because of their sin. So it, like, wow, unclean is like, that, that's all that meant. Unclean is you're disqualified from fellowship with God. The good news is we can get clean, washed, right? right. That's what Jesus was all about. So nothing unclean, nothing with sin can enter it. 
nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, sins, mm -hmm. right? But only those who have suffered long enough in purgatory that they're good enough to finally make it in. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Yeah. No. The ones who make it in are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. On five or six occasions in the scriptures, the Book of Life is referred to. Mm -hmm. And names that are written in it. Yeah. And sometimes it says, names will never be blotted out. Yay. <laughs> but what the book of life is, is the book in which every person who has eternal life, their names are recorded. Mm. How do you get into a book that records every person who has eternal life? Mm. You earlier referenced John 3.16, yep. which says what, Josh? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What do you know? Yeah. Believing in Jesus gives you eternal life. So your name gets written in the book yep. of all the people that have eternal life because you got eternal life the one and only way there is. Yep. So again... All of scripture could not be clearer. Yep, to make it to heaven, to make it to be in the presence of God and enjoy paradise with him forever and ever and ever and ever, you have got to be holy. You've got to be perfect because they're the only people that have life. And the only way to get perfect, the yeah. only way to be holy, the only way to have eternal life is faith in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. It's the one and only way. Absolutely. Well, Dave, thank you for doing all of the research on this. And we got to close up with a little te teaser little of what's teaser coming for after what's to come at Easter. Yeah. So it's going to be super exciting. Um, as always, if you guys have any questions about anything that we talk about here on our Q&A or any of our sermons that we have on Sunday mornings or you're reading your Bible in the middle of the week and you're like, oh man, I just read this and I, I have a question about that. You go to my3c.org, you can go to the Submit a Question tab. It's totally anonymous. You can put your question in there. And in one of our future Q&As, we will tackle that question and can we just we've said this so many times josh yeah. but we continue to get questions that call for an immediate personal mm -hmm. response yeah. and we can't do it yeah. because we don't know who you are right. so if you could explain other ways when people need a direct response mm -hmm. that calls right away for a question on how they can answer questions that way that again i think that might help yeah, so if you have a question that wants to get answered right away, you can put your name, you can put your email, you can put your phone number um, so that we can get back to you as soon as we see it and get the answer to that question yep. typed out to be able to give it to you. So if you're like, man, I'm reading this, I need to answer as soon as possible. Just drop your name, your phone number, or your, your email in there, and we will get back to you. We want Please. to be able to answer your questions as soon as possible, if that is what it is yep. calling for. Or they can also use the uh, the yes, connection the connect card. card. Our, yes, thank app. you for reminding me. We have a connect mm -hmm. card on our app um, or on our website. If yep. you go to our website mm -hmm. too, you can fill that out. You can just it'll put some basic information in there and then it'll give you a box where you're allowed to type something. You just put it in there and then uh, oh, oh, there's a QR code. It's, it's, or even I don't know how to better. point to it. Oh, it's right there. Thank you, Steve, for you letting us know that the, the, the QR code the is The wizard right behind the curtain is amazing. He is amazing. Do, what a it? great yeah, communication. Really so, <laughs> yes, you can scan that QR code. That's right there. I got to get better at pointing to this thing. That's right there. 
And you can fill out that connect card. We'll be able to get all of your information and reach out to you to answer the question that you have. Well, Dave, thank you very much for, again, just taking the time to go over this. Again, you guys can look at any of our past Q&As through our Facebook or through our YouTube page. We hope that you join us at one of our services this upcoming Sunday, 820, 940, 11 o'clock. We live stream our 940 service starting at 925 with our pre-show, and we have our post-show directly following the service. So we would love to see you either in person or online this Sunday. But until then, I hope you have a great week. If you're here in Michigan, try to enjoy this weather. That's going to get over 60 degrees in February, which Ah, is amazing. I absolutely love it. Everyone's (laughs) telling me it's my fault, but I don't think I did anything wrong. I don't think think, fault is the right word in this case, I think that I brought the warm weather up here, and if it would stay here, that would be great. I absolutely love it. You guys have a great rest of your week. We hope to see you at one of our services this Sunday. Bye, guys.